What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. I'm sitting down talking to Christina Martinez, who is one of the SAISD board trustees. Um, Christina, do you want to tell everybody a little bit about the work that you're doing? Yeah, so um, I have um, been on the school board for three years now. I was appointed um, to serve an unexpired term in 2017. And in 2019, I won my first election by 131 votes. Um, and so um, it's been a, um, one of the most fulfilling uh, things I've ever done with my life. And um, it is definitely a lot of work. I'm also a, you know, full-time working mom. I work for Big Brothers, Big Sisters of South Texas, but it is definitely um, something that is important, right? To have people serving in this in this, in a position like this, you know, real people with kids in school who understand the struggles of, of families. Um, and that was the platform I ran on, right, was to be a support for working families. And so um, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, and I know, you know, we're on Zoom, so no one can see what we're doing. But I will say Christina's, one of her little ones is right here with us. Uh, <laughs> and and she's having a good time fixing Christina's hair, which is like the picture of my whole entire existence right now. Trying to, you know, do all of the things that are, are the new normal, which is working and momming and and then my passion projects that I, like you, do because the work is so important and because I am so invested in in uh, making sure that San Antonio has its best and brightest um, students and its best and brightest teachers. And whatever we can do to support that is just really important work. I'm curious, like, how did you even decide that you would want to run for school board or be a school board? Like, tell me a little bit about that. So I was approached by some members of the community, actually, back in 2017. They were looking, um, they, they saw my name on the Leadership SAISD roster. I had graduated from Leadership SAISD, so I always warn all the graduates, like, they're going to come looking for you one day. <laughs> um, so they were going through a roster, a group of community stakeholders who were, you know, really interested in trying to find the right person. And so they asked me, they were like, would you consider running for this appointment? And I was like, huh, I don't know. Let me, yeah, sure. Let me try it. Um, and so I did. So I went up uh, in front of the board one night at a board meeting and got interviewed for like three hours in heels. And <laughs> oh my God. At, yeah. And at the end of the, and it's so funny because I showed up to the board meeting all by myself. I didn't know, like, do I bring my family? Like, what do I do? You know, I hadn't spent a lot of time at board meetings um, prior to this. 
So I show up all by myself. Like at one point I'm like, can someone hold my purse? So I go up and like interview. And so like after like five hours, like five hours were there, the board goes off to this room and they, um, like they're meeting. They're also eating dinner. I didn't know that back then, but they feed you <laughs> the night of board meetings. Um, so they come back out and Patty Radel's like, well, we've made our decision and we have unanimously voted to pick Christina Martinez. And the room is like death silent. <laughs> and so I'm all like, yay, like high-fiving myself. And then that's where my journey started. And it's been a lot of learning and, you know, educational policy is wonky and deep and dense. Um, and but old, I have like just old, so many old policies. Old. So old. Um, but, you know, here I am doing the work and, uh, you know, it's been good. It's been good work. Yeah. I mean, it must be a little bit crazy in, in today's world of COVID to try to weigh all of the pros and cons of what the right thing to the next right thing to do is. Um, what is that like? Like what, how do you, how do you even decide what the next right move is? So, you know, this has been really hard. People have asked me, like, what has been the hardest part about being a board member in COVID? And I will say that the hardest part has been that we as a society right now are so, everybody is in a different place with how they feel about COVID, how they feel about education. There is no consensus, right, on what the right thing is to do. People are very polarized around, yeah. the, around this. And confused. And, and confused, I feel like right? it's so confusing, too. Very confusing. And depending on, like, where you get your information from, right? Like, if you just, like, are you, are you reading Facebook articles all day? Are you listening to the CDC? Are you listening to the World Health Organization? Like, just depending on where you get your information, you know, it just... It's a, it's a very polarizing time. And if you say one thing, people are like, oh, you're this. And if you say something else, they're like, oh, you're this. And you're like, no, I'm just, I am, this is Christina Martinez. I am a working parent who, who is out in the world working. I am, I have been working at my agency since June. We are bringing in people. We are bringing in volunteers. We are bringing in families. And my real world experience is that People can move through the world cautiously and safely, and, and that's okay. Not everybody's there, right? Some people have not left their houses. Some people are still very worried. But I had to figure out who I was in this, and I had to take a stand and feel okay about this. Yeah. And I am, I am a working parent who put my child in childcare this summer. She was at Girls, Inc., um, and I love Girls Inc. And I love all of the nonprofits that stayed open this summer to receive children because yeah. there's so many working families like mine who, you know, sometimes were villainized, right, for having to say, I need to work and I need childcare. Like people were mean about it. And, and there was a part of me that sometimes was like, do I, like, how do I feel about this? But at the end, I, I have to take a stand and say, I, I believe that working families need lots of choices. We need, we need safe places for our children to go. Um, some of us need schools to be open because our kids really do need to be in school. They are struggling academically. They are struggling um, social, emotionally. Some of us have children that have special education needs that yeah. can't be served in a virtual setting. Um, and so, yeah, taking a stand about who I am in this has been the hardest part for me. Um, I'm better. I feel better about it now. Um, yeah. But it's, it's taken some work. It's really hard, right? I, I feel, I live in SAISD, 
I'm a working parent. I have three children. I think everybody that listens probably already knows this, but for anyone who doesn't, I have a, a son who's entering his senior year of high school. I have a son who's entering his 10th grade year and a daughter who's going to be a first grader. And they are at three different campuses. They're all at um, choice schools in SAISD. And this was a really hard choice year. Like I, I have always been a proponent of choice, I think. Um, especially like when it's to me and to mine, right? I wouldn't say I've always been a proponent of charter school choice, although my mind has really shifted yeah. um, over the last couple of years. Uh, and I, I do think like I'm on the board of an amazing charter school. The gathering place blows my mind every single day and I'm proud of the work that we're doing. Um, so it's really come, I've come a long way in my thinking on that, but I've always felt like having a choice even inside of the school district is really important. Um, and I've been really, I, I will say this to you, you're, because of the work you do on the board, I'm so appreciative of the choices that SAISD gave families. Um, we have three kids. We used all three options. We have the senior who is taking almost entirely dual credit, dual enrollment classes, and he really felt strongly that he needed to be on his campus with the support of his peers and teachers to be successful in his dual credit college classes. Um, so when the time is right and schools open for students, we've opted to let him go to school in person and have face-to-face -face instruction. Our 10th grader is, um, he, he actually experienced a really successful uh, year, end of year at home. Like he, he didn't, I didn't get any phone calls home saying he was off task or wearing his baseball cap in the middle of the classroom instruction time. Um, we really didn't have a problem with turning in late assignments. We didn't, I knew what assignments he had and that was part of the reason that we could stay on top of it. Um, and so he made the best grades he's made in a long time. And he decided that even if it feels safe to go back to school, his preference would be to be at home home for nine weeks um, because it's an option so we we chose that for him and then the first grader you know she's a home a lot on her own um, because we're a blended family and we share we share time with another group of parents right and so she's starving for playmates <laughs> like she I, you know she wants to be with other people who will spend their day entertaining and playing with her and sitting down and doing the work with her. And we are, we're, we are workers. We can't do that all day, every day. And so for her, it was like, you know, I don't know what the right thing is. I, I, you know, she's six. She needs to be around her peers. I don't think that I'm, you know, my capacity as a teacher has diminished over the years because uh, I'm out of practice and because I've never had to teach my own kid before. Um, and so for her, we just kind of said, let's let the school decide, you know, we don't want to take up a spot on the campus that someone else might really need much more. Uh, we have the ability to work from home if we need to. Um, but we're also okay with her being with her classmates. And so we just kind of said with Ellie, let's just let the school decide where they would like for her to be and we'll be okay with whatever that decision is. 
So I just can't, I can't understate how comforting in a time when things are really uncomfortable it was to have an option that fit each one of our children. Yeah, that was, I think, always, you know, and one of the things I've really appreciated about our superintendent and the recent um, evolution of the board is that choice is empowering, right? And when people feel empowered to make the decisions for their children that they need to make, only good can come from that, right? So when parents have the right information, when, when they feel empowered, that is what creates the sense of community that you want at a campus. And so, you know, we've been, we've been pushing choice when we were talking about how we, you know, open schools, you know, once, it, once it's safe to do so, right, um, that, that families need to make the decisions that are best for them. And so, yeah, I have really appreciated um, our, our leadership. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And I think it's still, I mean, I, I still think like it's tricky. I think there's no way to make everybody happy. I think that you're right. People are in different places in their understanding and in their sense of comfort and security. And so I can't imagine a scenario like I've, I've tried to work up scenarios in my head that would be best for everyone. And I can't, like, I, I can't think of a scenario where everybody is uh, getting exactly what they need. Um, and I think there's been pushback on that in thinking we should not open schools at all until, you know, there's really significant changes in, in the way the virus spreads and in how quickly it's spreading. Um, and so, like, how, what are you watching for? Like, I, we're not in school right now. We're not going to be in school for sure for the next three weeks. I know there's potential that that could get extended, um, but what are, what are we looking for? Like, how do we decide? I know we have a, a rollout plan where it's phases of, um, you know, when this happens, we'll let 25% back. When this happens, it'll be 50. When this happens, and it'll continue on that way. But what are those things, what are those criteria where it's like, okay, here's where, now we're at another inflection point. Now we can do something different. What are you guys watching? So Metro Health, you know, has really been the leader in helping San Antonio districts make decisions about how to reopen schools. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that because, you know, there was a time when the governor was making decisions and then the TEA was making decisions and then the governor was like, the local, the local uh, health d districts will make their own decisions and everybody was like, yay. And then they said, oh, no, never mind. They don't have that power. So let me just tell you that that's been crazy having to like deal with that right do we have the power do we not have the power do we have the power who's got the power right so you know i think we're grateful that everybody has agreed that metro health will help districts you know look at data to make decisions about when to reopen schools um saisd has gone even further than that and made their own set of data based on some of the conditions that metro health is looking at so we're looking at positivity rate that's probably one of the biggest data points that we are looking at and for us to open schools at 25 percent the positivity rate has to be um 10 percent or less and so i think it's been like 12 percent over the last couple of days um there are you know uh there's a hypothesis that we could have the um positivity rate down to five percent by september 8th 
So if that happens, awesome. So New York is about to reopen schools, right? And remember, they were the first to get hit really, really hard. They are about to reopen schools at 100%, and their positivity rate is at 1% right now. So, you know, we are looking. The good thing is we have the ability to look at other districts that are reopening. And, you know, so a lot of what I look at um, as a board member, and I, you know, I have a team from the school board project. They're a nonprofit here that helps school board members um, understand data and understand policy. So I am lucky uh, to work with those ladies. But what we're looking at is how have other districts opened up? What was their local positivity rate? Did they open up with 25%, 50%? When they had 25%, was it all the kids in the building at one time? Did they have a cohort come on Mondays and Wednesdays and a different? So I'm looking at that stuff all the time because I find it very fascinating. And then to see what sort of spread happens in those specific conditions, right? Because that's really what we're looking at. Um, So positivity rate is one of the big things that we're looking at. We're also looking at doubling time. How long does it take for the amount of cases to double over a two-week period? Um, And so doubling time... Um, For us, in order to open up at 25%, doubling time has to be at 21 days or more, um, and that we've already hit. So that is a good sign. so, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at data. We're, we're relying heavily on conversations with Metro Health. You know, our superintendent has built a really good relationship with Dr. Wu um, around how do we bring kids in? What are the best practices? And then we're watching, right? I mean, um, Bernie ISD opened up, right, last week, 100%. So um, we're watching to see what happens also because a lot of what happens in other districts can tell us a lot about how we do things well or not. So, yeah. So in those other school districts, like in our surrounding area, there are school districts that are back in person, either full-time or a percentage of their students. Are they watching the same things and it's different in their communities or what, how did they arrive at their, do you even know, like, why are they doing what they're doing? So yeah, so their, their, their health districts are having different data. So like Bernie ISD has different health data than we do. Um, Now, the interesting thing, you know, and and Judge Wolf said this the other night, Bernie ISD actually has schools within the Bear County footprint, right? And so it's not like Corona stops at the edge of one county and goes into another, you know, and so... Those are, those are decisions that their local school boards make because, again, the local school boards have a lot of power to make the decisions that they want. I mean, Catholic schools, my niece is at, in a Catholic school right now. They opened up for in-person uh, on Monday, and, you know, they – and the parents had choice at the Catholic schools, too. They got to decide if they wanted in-person or um, virtual, and I think she said in her eighth-grade class there was five kids that went back. So she's got an eighth grade class with five kids right now. Um, You know, those families weighed all their options and choices and they made those decisions that were right for them. Yeah. Um, And I mean, there's still, I would imagine, I I see it on on social media and I hear it sometimes um, directly that there's still like a lot of tension around the decision to even have anyone at all on campus. And even when you're running schools in a distance or a blended format, 
there is going to be the need to have some people on the campus some of the time at least. So I, I have had so many people, not tons, a few. I've had a few teachers um, who have called me or texted me and said things like, I'm so scared to be back on campus and I don't know what the right thing to do is because I'm being told we have to go back on campus. Um, and there's been like a level, like, I feel like of myth busting that has to happen around like who's being forced to return to campus and who's being, or, or like who has a choice and who doesn't have a choice. Um, can you talk a little bit about those? Like, are you hearing the same thing at your level? Because um, I know sometimes, you know, it's, it's easy to call somebody who's not in a direct leadership position and say, like, I'm so worried, I'm so scared. And, and sometimes I'll say, like, have you talked to your administrator? And they're like, I don't want to, I don't want to be in trouble, or I don't want to, you know what I mean? So have, are you hearing those same conversations from your seat? Oh, yeah, yes. And we've had a lot of, I've had a lot of calls not like hundreds, but you know, more than yeah. usual, right? Uh -huh. More than usual. I've had calls from teachers. I've had calls from family members of teachers. Um, and yes, the absolute fear and, and concern about one's personal health or the health of your family is absolutely real, right? And, and your perception is your reality, right? Um, but again, my real shared, my real true experience is that adults can come back to work, they can social distance, and they can move through the world with other adults. Now, I'm not talking about kids yet, because we're not talking about children yet, but we're talking about adults. And this is my real experience, because I am back at work with other adults, um, and we are moving through the world, wearing our masks, social distancing, and, and working together in partnership to keep each other safe. Now, there's a lot of responsibility in that, right? There's responsibility that I do everything I can as a member of this team to keep myself safe. There's a lot of trust that I have to have of my fellow colleagues that they're going to do everything that they can to keep it safe, to keep themselves safe. There's also a lot of trust around what are you doing on the weekends, right? Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> like, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so challenging because what are you supposed to do? Tell people, and as soon as you leave work, you can't go anywhere else. Right, right. And so I think here, you know, we're a staff of about 50, right, working in our building. Like, I think here we all assume that everybody's doing the right thing they can to keep each other safe. But we also don't come within six feet of each other. We are also always wearing our masks. We take it very seriously. Now, there, there could have been a time when we, you know, there was a time when we first came back when not everybody was taking it as seriously as others, right? And so we had to create like a hotline, right? Where like if you saw someone that wasn't doing what they were supposed to do, that you that you got called out, right? And, and you got oh, told. That's so uncomfortable though. I get it, I get it, but... This is my life. This is my life, right? Yeah. You're, I am. I am trusting that um, people around me are going to do whatever it takes. 
So when it comes to staff being on campus, right? So we've had staff on campus almost the entire summer, right? Our custodians were there, um, our cafeteria workers, right? These, these people were at, on campus. They are real life heroes every single day. I mean, our, our bus drivers were driving into communities, feeding, feeding our families, our custodians uh, were, you know, making sure that they'd come back and they'd, you know, help disinfect yeah. things and clean things. Just, I mean, a lot of work happened over the summer. When it came to bringing teachers back, you know, we talked a lot with the superintendent about it. And I said, look, I learned here at my office that when you bring people back in phases, it sort of allows people to adjust, right? So you have that first phase of people that are like ready to get back to work. That was me, right? I told you earlier, I struggled working at home. I have a small house full of children. I was ready to come back to my office. I could not work from home one more day. So you have, you're going to have people like that, right? That are ready to come back to work, ready to put their mask on and, and do what they need to do. Let's have those people come into our buildings first, right? Let's have those teachers that are ready to come back. Let's have them come back first. And so our approach to bringing teachers back has been this phased in approach. So this week, uh, the first week of school was voluntary. Everybody who wanted to come in could come in. And then there's another wave of people that can come in next week. Right now, we are asking that everybody be back on campus by September 8th, right? Which is technically when schools could open in person. Now, if that date gets pushed back, right? Then we will look at pushing back the date of when teachers have to 100% be back on campus. Um, but is there I really a like, huge chance that it might get pushed back? Or are you thinking, are you pretty confident that? We're thinking if it gets packed, if it gets pushed back, maybe one more week. So we would be starting the following week. Yeah. Um, but right now, the data looks good that right. if it's not the week of September 8th, then the following week. But and that's we're talking a about challenge, right? Because it it's so fluid. I mean, what we're seeing this week could be nothing like what we're seeing next week. We'll see if people don't stay home. Yeah, could just get better. Yeah, like Labor Day's coming, right? Like we saw uh, the spikes that happened after Memorial Day in July 4th. So like everybody just needs to stay home over Labor Day. Um, Seriously. Okay, so what happens if everything goes exactly ideally and we get back into schools on September 8th, which is what, like two days, a day after Labor Day, and two weeks later, everything's in the shitter again. <laughs> like then what? What happens then? Then, then we, then we close down schools again and we go back into our, um, our, and so that, and so that's a good thing, right? Because we're starting virtually, mm -hmm. our families and our kids will be able to pivot very quickly. Everybody will have the technology they need. We, we, our learning management system that we're using is going to allow us to be able to pivot if we need to have people go back home and also remember we changed our instructional our academic calendar has different is different right it has two weeks built in um it has more more intercession time and so if if we need to bring kids back in during one of those weeks then that might be something that we have to do so we tried to build in a lot of flexibility with the schedule and you know, the learning management system that, that families are using to do remote learning so that if the worst case scenario is there's a huge outbreak at a school that we can just return to virtual 100%. There are so many um, teachers who are organizing across the nation and who are participating in strikes or rallies um, 
Are you at all worried about that in our city? So, you know, I, of course, right. We, we are always, we are always, I wouldn't say worried, right. But we are always attuned to the fact that there are, um, there are people that are strongly passionate about something and that they're going to do whatever they can to advocate for that. Right. That is absolutely something that we pay attention to and that we listen to. Um, I spend a lot of time with my principals because as a, as a school board member, I can hear what I hear from the superintendent, but I also need to hear from my frontline, which yeah, is absolutely. my principals, right? And so I spend a lot of time talking to principals. So like two weeks before school started, I was on Zoom with every single principal for about 30 to 45 minutes going, how are you feeling, right? What, what, what are you worried about? And for the most part, every single one of them was like, everything's okay. I have a few teachers that are worried and because they have healthcare reasons, they have healthcare concerns themselves, or they have healthcare concerns about family members, but we built out an HR process to deal, to address those issues. So every employee who has, you know, concerns about their own health or the health of their family members, there is an HR process to help them work through that, right? So I think that's great. They have some options too, right? Staff has options. They have options. And at the outset of this, I was really advocating for that where I could and when I could. That in the same way we provide options for families, we ought to provide options for teachers and staff to at least say, here's why. I don't think I've ever met a teacher that is like, I just don't want to teach this semester. Like that is not the issue. The issue is, or, and, or who isn't willing to there. I wouldn't say every teacher is just completely risk adverse. I think that there are people who are are generally okay with some, some level of risk. Um, We, I mean, we are, we really understand that we are, in the mix with so many different people on every single day that we sort of have become accustomed to like, okay, I might, I might get the flu. I might get, you know, I might, a lot of things might happen. Right. I don't even think it's that it's that now we're talking about how we are. um, We don't have enough information or resources to fight a virus that's easily spread. And so if we're living with aging parents or we're living with someone who's recovering from a a battle with cancer or we're living with somebody who has a compromised immune system, the level of anxiety around like, what if, what if I don't even know I'm sick and I go home and and give it to someone else um, who is not in the same health that I am like, how are you supposed to deal with that? And so I feel like at least having ways for, for staff members to let somebody in the position of power know, like, this is the circumstance that I am living in. So what, what can I do? So I know you said you had HR processes, but like, what are some of those options that are available for teachers? So I, so from what I understand, if there is a teacher that has a compromised immune system or is living with somebody with a compromised immune system, they're going to find ways to allow them to still stay virtual. Um, or they might be in a co-teach model with another teacher where, you know, one teacher's doing the in-person instruction for kids and another one's not. That's awesome. I mean, I, I really was thinking too, like we have always, it, 
blended and virtual learning, it's not an easy task to accomplish. There's a lot of behind the scenes things that have to happen. And if we could find a system for creating online content, on demand content, I think that that would be really amazing because it's always accessible to students who are, are learning from home. So is there, is there any, um, is there any scenario where we could have a team of educators who are the team that create the on-demand content? Because I feel like on-demand content can be created anywhere. So if you have like really a high-risk situation and you go through the HR process and everything that you're saying is verified and could you be like a part of a team that creates the digital content for a school district? Like, have we thought through, I feel like this is also going to unearth some, some new opportunities of, of like instructional support that maybe the, the job description and positions don't exist yet, but they could, right? Like they could, we could have like this teaching force that is about creating on-demand content at some point that could really do that work from anywhere. So we have been using some, I don't think we're at the place where you are yet, but I have been talking about that as well too with some of my friends. Like imagine if somebody got, like if that was somebody's skill set, right? Because you can see, I mean, even just from the array of online lessons I saw even last spring, some people were just amazing at, it's like anything, right? Some people are amazing and quick and really get into it. And then some people, it's not their cup of tea, right? They would rather be in a real classroom with children. Um, and so, but how do we take people that have that natural skill set, right? And say, look, this is going to be an on-demand thing for like ever now, right? Now that we see how important this space is. And so we're not there yet. Now we did have a team of people create content to get the school year started. So we did use some staff um, to build lesson plans. So that way as teachers were kicking off the year, those lessons plans were already preloaded into the learning management system. So that way it was less about spending their whole, because I feel like the spring, so many teachers spent a lot of time building out their their um, lessons that it's sort of distracted from the one-to-one -one time or the classroom time or that relationship building time like I could see how it would be hard to do both so the idea was let's pre-build some lessons let's load them into canvas um, and that way the teachers especially in the beginning of the year can be focusing on building that relationship with kids virtually so Yes, I think at some point we need to get to a place where that does become an actual job, right? That is your skill set really being put to use, but we're not there yet. Yeah, I just, I in my imagination, I see so much potential for doing things, uh, for some of the ways that we're doing things now to be the way we do things. Um, instead of like reverting to some of the old stuff that we we really are like, hey, you know what, this is this is going to work for a certain student demographic or a certain teacher demographic, or this matches a learning profile that we weren't necessarily tuned completely into like for my son. Right. Um, or this is like the new iteration of choice in, in our schools. Um, before it was like geographical choice. And that's always a challenge because everybody doesn't have access to a geographical choice. Our city infrastructure doesn't lend itself well to getting somebody who lives in seven, eight, 207 to 78254 like it, if you don't have a car it's not easy to access a geographical choice
But in this regard, if the choice is I can learn from a really creative um, program that meets my learner profile that I wouldn't be able to drive myself to, but I can, I can do this in a digital format. Like I just see potential in that. I don't know what that exactly would look like, but I also think to your point, like this is also a way to create some choice in how you do your job as an educator. Everybody has different pathways and strengths. And I think we are right. Like there are teachers who this feels really natural to them. They're already with it. They know like this is efficient and it's easy and they understand that if they have recorded content, then those students who may have struggled with chronic absenteeism in the past can get caught up on demand. Like they can do that. There's not a, a reason for them to not do that if we solve for digital divide and, and internet access, those kinds of things, right? So I think like there's potential and, and there are also some underlying challenges that are beyond what a school should be able to take, sh should take on, not be able to take on, but should. I mean, the digital divide shouldn't be a problem for school districts to solve. Um, that's a that's a community city problem, and we should be solving it in a community or city way. But I see districts doing everything they can to make sure that students who live in a digital divide have access to the internet. Um, and I, you know, I wonder. And feeding kids, I think food insecurity. You'll never hear me stop saying until poverty doesn't exist anymore that food security is in, in the top three reasons why a student isn't successful. I mean, it's just, I, and I don't think that's always on somebody's radar. Um, so I, I think like there's so many, there's so much potential and this is uncovering so many challenges that everybody should be paying attention to anyway. I always think back to like one of your first podcasts when you're talking with Diego, right? And you're talking about the food share program that you guys, you know, like brainchild came up with at JT Brackenridge, right? Um, um, but, you know, it, it is, right? And sometimes we get so caught up like wanting, and I think that's, I think that's the point of like what we're trying to do at SAISD is like we can spend so much time talking about all the reasons why these things exist, right? And those reasons are deep, so very, very deep. Um, but for kids, we don't have time to figure out why these things are happening or who's going to fix them. Like, we just have to jump into action and address the needs. And, you know, there's always going to be this, like, larger conversation, right? Schools are not um, – Schools are not there for the welfare of families, right? Teachers are not social workers, right? Like, and I totally understand that we can get wrapped up in, in saying whose job it is to meet the basic needs of families. We can definitely have lots of conversations about that. But we, as, you know, the people that are in charge of ensuring that kids are growing academically from year to year, we have to meet those basic needs and we have to address all of those barriers. And you know, food, water, shelter, space, right? That's at the very bottom of the pyramid. Um, and then we can talk about, and then we can talk about academics. Then we can talk about, you know, and I, I think the other thing that's been on everybody's mind right now is the next thing after, after, if all of those things are, are steady and stable and everybody has what they need, then there's the, 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 idea or concept of learning gaps and what that might mean in the context of COVID. And I, I think like 
every educator known to man understands summer slide. You go on a summer break and people regress and it's sometimes a little bit of a regression and sometimes it's a lot of regression. Um, and we have, we've implemented um, measures to try to mitigate that, right? So we do summer reading academies, summer bridge activities, summer boot camps, um, and we bring people in early and we, we spend the first three weeks reviewing last year's content and we do pre-tests and post-tests and we understand where every we look at data we do a deep data dive um, at the beginning of the, the semester so that we really know where to start so I feel like we have some good things that we could maybe pick up from what we do to to counter the summer slide but I feel as though the the summer slide is just compounded by us not being in school since early March so what I, I know that there are parents who really are pushing for an individualized academic recovery plan and who want, um, they want to know that every student has the kind of access and support that they need to be successful at the end of the year for this coming school year by the current standards of measure, right? I have so many thoughts about that, but I'm going to let you, you start off. So um, we have a, we just named her deputy superintendent at the board meeting on Monday night, but she's been with the district for a little over, a, maybe a couple of years now. Her name is Patty Salzman. And this woman is just so smart. And so, you know, I've been spending a lot of time with her talking about, um, about academic growth, about how parents are going to stay informed on how well their child is doing. What does this learning gap look like? You know, and so she, her and I had a conversation um, on Tuesday, you know, and she's, she kept saying, she kept saying this to me over and over again, right? Learning is not linear, right? And so this idea that um, my child learned this, um, and then they were supposed to learn this, but they didn't learn it, doesn't mean they're not going to learn the next thing, right? It just might mean that how we approach them learning the next thing also includes the thing that they struggled with, right? And so, you know, this idea that everybody's all of a sudden behind because COVID happened is not true, right? For the most part, if a child was doing okay pre-COVID, they're still doing okay right now. If a child was struggling academically pre-COVID, they're probably still struggling right now, right? And so when, when teachers are back in the classroom, they're going to start to use their own assessments to gauge where children are. And the better the, the, better the idea a teacher has about where each of her kids is, then she can tailor, right, that instruction to is the whole group not understanding this concept or is it just one child that understands this concept? Now that has always happened, right, Jen? I mean, as teachers, That's always you, guys have, you guys have always done that, yes. right? And so, you know, it's just maybe we as parents don't know those things, right? I don't know that when you're looking at my child, you know that she's really struggling with vocabulary and she might be the only one in class. And so maybe when you pull her into small group, that's your emphasis with her. I might not ever know that as a parent, right? right? But you know that, you yes. know that as a teacher. Teachers um, 100% know that. And I feel like that. we've actually done a lot of research and investment in programs that help teachers discover that, right? Like, so when you, when a student logs in and takes a 
an online reading assessment like MAP or takes an online math assessment, we are the, the, the data that's culled from those assessments is really specific. It's very content specific. Um, and so I think teachers, and we use that data. I, I don't know that every parent, and this is you know, a testament to FERPA and making sure that we're really um, observant of what data is, is where, but generally the campuses that I've led and, and been led on have a data room where we are 100% specifically talking about every child's learning need in every classroom. Um, I think that sometimes when we talk about individualized learning plans, um, it hasn't been as codified for general ed students as it has been for special ed students. I think that for special ed students, you actually have an individualized education plan, an IEP, that has progress measures built into it that says, Things like by this month, this student will know this percentage of this content for the entire school year, right? And and that 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 plan gets presented in a parent meeting, a parent a required parent conference, and everyone is legally bound to that plan, um, and ever and it's presented in a format of like this is what our goals are for the year. And this is everything we're going to do to support meeting those goals, both on the teacher side, on the student side, and on the parent family side. I don't know that we necessarily go so deep with every other student, but I would say um, that every, every teacher who's doing their job knows the same information for every student in their classroom, even if it isn't as explicitly presented as somebody who has an IEP. Um, that's my generalization. That that has always happened. I don't think it's gonna be different this year, right? I mean, I think. Well, we do, we do want parents to be more informed about their child's data, right? I, that is something I 100% think is important, right? Again, when, when families are empowered and they have the right information, things only go up, only get better. And so like tonight, our school has a training for parents on MAP. And so it's a Zoom training that they're doing for all the parents. They're going to explain to us how the MAP assessment's going to be done. Um, for first and second grade, they're offering to do it virtual, but if we wanna take our child in to have the MAP done face-to-face, -face, that's an option. For kinder, our, our campus is just kinder through second grade. So for kinder, they have already said, we recommend bringing your child in for a face-to-face -face map assessment, just because, you know, they're not used to the digital, um, you know, uh, assessments yet. So, you know, I, and they're going to do everything they can to make sure parents feel safe bringing their kids into campus. I mean, that's all the work that the schools have to do. But that's a step in the right direction, right? If we were, if COVID had not happened, we probably would not be having a map training for parents, right? So, totally. and or right it, maybe if we did, it would have been in person, right? And it would right. have been like, you come to one of these three in-person sessions, and if you didn't go, you didn't go. And that's yeah. what I mean about like uh, this on-demand content. I would assume that the, the session is probably going to be recorded, and it's probably going to live somewhere online, and people will probably be able to access it, even if they can't make the live version of it. Yeah, so you're right. So that there's going to be so much more access to the information than there ever was before. And that is 
totally, you know, what's important to us during this time. Um, but yeah, so parents will, will understand, parents and caregivers will be able to understand what the map is. We'll have a beginning of year map score, and then we'll have a middle of year map score. And in between there, I imagine that we will be having conversations with teachers about how our children are doing. Now, any, every, we, we promise, our promise to every parent is that a regular general education teacher should be able to improve a child's academic growth at least one year, right? You get a master teacher, even more, right? Because these are the seasoned professionals that are the best at their game. But every child should at least be able to grow one year academically in every subject, right? Um, and so that's, that's the hallmark, right, that we're looking at as parents. Is my child growing from year to year? Now, of course, if it, like I said earlier, if a child was struggling pre-COVID, they're most likely still struggling now. These are the children that the schools are going to start to identify as the ones that come back first, right? Once we get into the 25% can come back to campus, these are the children that we want to bring back first. Now, that might mean that my child, my, both my children, who I elected to put in, uh, in school as soon as school's open, they both want to be back on school. And so that was the choice that we made. That may mean that if there's not enough room for them, yeah. someone's going to call me and say, you know what? Sorry. Alex is doing okay. Can you keep her home another couple of weeks? And I'm going to go, <gasps> yes. Right? It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Am I going a little crazy? Of course. Yeah. But... I totally understand, right, that there are going to be some kids that need to be in school before my child does, and that's okay. Yeah. Is there a scenario where we skip one of the tiers, or will it always be like 25% first, and then and then 50%, and then we move on from there? Or like if everything's good, will we go from zero to 50%, or is, that, or is it always going to be tiered? It's always going to be tiered. Okay. Yeah, it's always going to be tiered because that is how we're going to be able to control spread, right? So that so bringing in groups and phases is how you control spread, right? When you bring everybody back at one time, um, you aren't able to control that spread. So yeah, at this point, we're looking, we're not looking at trying to skip, skip over colors or skip over, you know, those things. Yeah. And how many people right now would you, would you, do you have an estimate for like how many families decided to stay home? Yeah. So right now, 70% of families have said that they want to stay home and 30% of families are saying that they want to come uh, to school in person. Yeah. And what about teachers? Like how many, is there, is there a percentage of teachers that said, I don't think I feel comfortable or was that an, I don't understand. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the options were for teachers. So, you know, from, from my conversations with principals, they had a third of teachers who said, I'm ready to come back. I feel totally comfortable. A third of teachers said, I, I have a, a real concern either with my own health or with the health of somebody that I live with. And then the other third of the teachers were teachers that were kind of in the middle, right? They, yeah. they were worried, they were scared, um, but maybe they would come back if they felt safe, if they felt like we had done all of the things that were recommended, if we had put up all of the yeah. practices, if we, had, if we do a good job showing 
that we have everybody's safety top of mind. We've bought all the PPE. We've bought all of the disinfecting materials. Then a third of those teachers feel more comfortable. And this is, this is from the conversations that I've had with the principals one-on-one. -on -one. Cause again, I like to get to the root of what's happening at the campus level. And so I think our, our real work is that second group of teachers, right? That love their kids and, and want to do the right thing for the kids, but just are not a hundred percent feeling safe, right? With yeah. all the measures and yeah, protocols sure. in place. And, and none of us blame them. That is, that is a real, like I said, the fear and anxiety are so real. Now, what do I appreciate are, you know, I love, I love principal. I'm going to say his name wrong. Nungari? Nungari? Nungari. Yes. Nungari. David. I love David. Right? David is wonderful because David is just such, he just has such high emotional intelligence, right? And he is able to understand the real anxiety that his teachers are having, right? And so I think like, I remember reading one of his Facebook posts talking about like his own anxiety, right? And having to like balance that with being a leader in a really right. tough position and, and being very vulnerable with that. And saying, you know, um, the district has um, this employee protection assistant program where you can go and you can, you know, get three free uh, therapy sessions and, you know, take advantage of this, right? Because all of us are going through something that we never imagined we would have to be going through. And therapy is wonderful, right? Um, and we should all be taking advantage of that. And I thought that that was like such a bold thing for a principal to say, right? Like I, I need help with my own mental health. There's nothing wrong with that. We all need to be practicing mindfulness. We all need to be working on our mental health and anxiety because those are barriers, right? For us, when we are, when we are having to think about coming back into the world and dealing with all of the challenges. For sure. For sure. And I think that's a, that's probably a domain that everybody could lean into, right? Like that districts could lean into. I know we try really hard at at SALT um, to provide some spaces where teachers can just come and relax and I, I and and take care of themselves um, and have like some downtime where they can say man you know what was really hard about today and have people that just get it because they're other educators um, and and to build some to form some strong friendships and alliances with people who aren't in necessarily in their same building I think being in the same building is great um, but there are probably a lot of teachers who don't have that even in the same building especially if they're singletons which a lot of schools have singletons because we are actually our neighborhood schools are actually really small in SAISD they're not like other schools in other districts in our city where we're serving 14 1500 kids at a time at the elementary level we have schools that are serving four or five hundred kids at a time and that means your community is really small and sometimes when you have a small teaching community you're the only person on your grade level who's teaching third grade uh, general ed and your other counterpart is teaching third grade bilingual you know and and so you're the only one of you that exists on your grade level and that's stressful too so we've we've worked really hard at just developing a a teacher and educator community where you can come and find other people that you can talk to and just relax with and and everybody in the room gets it because everybody's doing the work um i i would love to figure out how we could help 
do that in at a bigger like how we how do we scale that how do we scale that in school districts how do we scale that across the city um I'm always here. If you ever want to brainstorm, Christina, I'm right here. We can figure out how to how to do how to provide some of those mental health days and then just some community or fellowship with the teachers across the school district because it is not an easy job. And this isn't the only stressor. Like this right. people were stressed out before COVID ever existed, right? Like teachers were burnt out three years ago. This is like another layer of shit you know like god what else am i gonna have to figure out and be a responsible effective educator this is just like another thing so i i feel like people were already in need of mental health before we entered into covid and it wasn't something that is easily accessible um or widely talked about so i do i appreciate david too for being so vulnerable i think he's a he's just one of those people that you can look look at and say like he's a real person like he's like me he's like me I get it like he he gets it and I know he gets it because he's like me and I I feel like there's that's what's sometimes missing is thinking like you're actually a person like you the school board member the superintendent they're real people they're like me they're like you they have their own struggles and if we can name them and own them and help each other out of them we're going to be better in general, not just because it's COVID, but because we, we need it. Like we need that. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, I am, I am truly worried because I know that, you know, so many of our teachers are balancing so many things right now. I mean, my, my sister's a teacher in Robstown and, you know, she's every day she's worried about her students. Right. And she's worried about their families and she's worried about, you know, the ramifications of what happens when one of their family members gets sick, when one of their family members dies. I mean, that changes the entire environment of her classroom. Uh, you know, these are the things that she's like, that she'll call me really sad about, right? Because, you know, like, how do you explain these things, right, to children? How do you explain these things? Um, and so many times, you know, kids look to their teachers for that, right? For that explanation, for that reason. And, um, it is, it is very, very sad. Right. On top of the fact that, you know, I mean, my child who has a lot of support, right. A lot of support right now is still sad about COVID, right. He still wakes up in the morning and is like, mommy, I want COVID to be over already. I'm tired of it. You know, and I'm like, real. I know it's very surreal to listen to my six year old talk. Like she'll say things like, well, before the virus, when we would have play dates, you know, or she'll say things like, maybe when the virus is over, we can ask Gemma to come have a play date. And it's just kind of, it stops you in your tracks because it's not like we're the ones that are saying after the virus or before the virus, like we're not saying that. She's not, this is her own processing that she's doing. Um, And she'll say things like, you know, uh, yesterday she told me, School's really changed. We don't do it like that anymore. School's different. And I asked her, like, well, yeah, but it's good still, right? And she's like, I guess, but it's very different. We just don't do school the same way. Um, And it, you know, it's sort of like innocuous conversation, but at the same time, she's six. So, like, these are, this is her, this is, this is coming out of her. And I know that it's like, 
a level of stress that she's encountering or maybe not stress. Maybe that's not the right word, but it's like, she's trying to figure it out. Like she's trying to figure out when is this all going to be over? When are we going to go back to the way things were when the virus didn't exist? And half the time she calls it the virus and half the time she calls it the Cyrus, which is really funny. Uh, she's always like, when is the Cyrus going to be over? She wants to do gymnastics. And I, it's just, it's a really, and that weighs on me. It weighs on me as a mom. It weighs on me as an educator. It weighs on me as a human being that I don't have any answers for her. Uh, the best I can say is it's, it's not going to last forever. Yeah, that, that has become the mantra in our house is it's not going to last forever. And there will be a time when you look back on this and it will be all over. Um, but that's, that takes some convincing of myself on some days as well. Exactly. Well, yeah, because I want to go back to I, I want to, there are plenty of things I want to go back to. I want to go back to seeing people in person and walking and walking and not being worried um, and, and going to the grocery store and not feeling like I'm in some episode of some weird random TV show where everyone is in face masks. You know, I want to, I want, I want some sense of normalcy. And then there are other things that I'm like, let's not ever go back to the way we used to do that. I, yeah. I would actually, I really like some of the ways um, that we have shown up for each other and some of the ways that we've um, invested like actual real time with each other too. Like, especially in my little tiny family. Um, I always tease my sons. I'm like, you guys were social distance experts um, before this ever started. They're teenagers. They were never home. They were super involved in the things that they're passionate for. And we've just spent a lot of good quality time. So, I mean, I think there are silver linings, but it is hard. Yeah. It is tricky. Um, and I think, you know, at the center of it, at least for me, are all of our teachers, all of our educators and my principal friends um, and people that are back on campus and that are weathering criticism and weathering um, and who are having to be very courageous. I feel like this is a year for courage, uh, whether you want it to be or not, you, it, you have to be courageous to be back on a campus. Um, and I think teachers and educators are just the badasses of the society and we don't get enough credit for it. Um, so this is me saying, I see you. I think you're a badass. I love you. If you need help, you can find me. Um, Christina, how can people find you? So I, um, I am available on email mostly. Um, C Martinez one at SAISD.net is my school board email address. But if you want to email me racy things, um, you can email me things at Martinez. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you're like, I don't want to send this to my school board email. Also yeah, exactly. Because, you know, sometimes people do like um, those things where they like the Freedom of Information Act, you know, yeah, whatever. Exactly. Um, um, so if it's racier, um, martinez.christina1 at gmail.com. And so Martinez is spelled Martinez, right? There's thousands of us. Um, dot christina c-h-r-i-s-t-i-n-a the number one at gmail.com but yeah i mean we we know i mean i think everyone knows this right i am the daughter of two educators right both my parents taught in public schools for over 40 years i was raised by teachers right and um nothing matters more in the world than a teacher right because teachers are the gateway to a child's freedom 
and future and every potential in the world. And, you know, we, we would not be who we are today. I would not be who I am today without teachers who saw me and helped me. And I was a horrible, annoying student. Um, and so I'm so glad that teachers loved me anyway, um, and loved me all the way to success. And so, um, the world is a better place because of teachers and we can't get through this world without you. So thank you. I know that this is, um, you know, been a tough year for, for everyone. Um, but we appreciate you. And, uh, if you need me, I am here. Thank you. Thanks for spending part of your evening with me today. Of course. Happy to be here. Yay. I'm Jen Maestas and you're listening to Miss Education. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.